Hey, it's great to have you along today as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. Welcome to Sunday Night Bible Fellowship. We appreciate each one of you and that you've tuned in and uh, are listening as we continue our journey through this wonderful Gospel, the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18, and we'll be taking a look at verses 31 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 43. Luke 18, verses 31 to 43, or again, you can follow along on the screen as we work our way through this section, which I have entitled, Finishing Well. There are little things that, as you go along in the Gospel of Luke, that I feel are are really important, and sometimes it's it's helpful to have a bird's eye view of what's going on. And I I see here, as I put on the email this week, Luke takes a sharp right turn here by the by Jesus taking the disciples aside and points them towards Jerusalem. Now he's been going to Jerusalem and heading that way ever since chapter nine. But now we are heading into the the last weeks, last uh, days, and Jesus is going to instruct his disciples. And I think with, with all that, and we'll see it as we work our way through this passage, but with all of that, what I want you to see is not only they're heading towards Jerusalem, Jesus is heading towards his death and so on, but... When he gets done talking to the disciples, he turns around and he just continues on with his ministry. And what I want you to see today is the fact that Jesus gives us an example of someone who finishes well, finishes his life well. And I think that's really important for all of us. So let's take a look at this particular passage starting at verse 31. It's uh, Luke records for us. Then he took the twelve aside. Jesus took the twelve aside. And he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, typically we've been seeing that what Jesus does uh, as he is going from town to town and moving along with the crowd He'll have in the crowd his disciples. He'll also have in the crowd Pharisees. And then he will have just a hodgepodge of other people that are following along. And typically what Jesus has done, he will speak to the Pharisees with the disciples listening. Or he will speak to the disciples with the Pharisees listening. However, this is a a real intimate moment for Jesus and for the disciples in verse 31, where it says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them. So he did not say this in front of the crowd, the the Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, everybody who might be following. Instead, he takes the twelve aside. So he is starting here to prepare them for what is to come. So the uh, the pace is going to pick up real soon. It's kind of like if you've been to Niagara Falls, which which I've been, and and you've stood there and you've gone upstream, and you know the rapids and and the flow of the Niagara River is quite gentle and it's not rushing very fast. As you get closer to the falls, as you follow it along on the bank you will notice that it starts to pick up and and gets uh, more and more rapid and faster. And when it just gets before the falls, it is moving really quickly, really fast. Well, that's kind of like the life of of Christ and his ministry that has been existing for about three years. And it starts out slow, and we're up in Galilee, and things are happening at a more slow pace. 
And in chapter 9, it says that like Flint, he sets himself, he, he sets his target on Jerusalem where he's going. And then uh, it picks up a little bit more and whatever. And now we get down to the end of chapter 18. And now it is moving quite rapidly. So Jesus says here to his disciples in private, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because of the elevation, regardless what side you're going on, coming from, and uh, going up to Jerusalem is always uh, an uphill climb. And so, all things, it says here, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. So, Jerusalem is where this is all going to happen. And the things which have been told in the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, these are things now which are going to take place. They will be accomplished. Notice Jesus, because of his authority, because he is God, can guarantee these things are going to happen. Now, what will happen there? Well, uh, I've listed several things, and we'll look at a fuller list in the following slides, but just overall, You can see uh, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, predicted in Zechariah 9.9, the betrayal of Judas, Psalm 41.9, the cross with all of the suffering, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, his death and burial, Psalm 16.10, his resurrection, Jonah 2 and Matthew 12.40, his ascension back home to heaven, Psalm 24, and his enthronement in glory, Psalm 45, 6, and 7. The Matthew passage that I gave to you, that was just simply the fulfillment. That wasn't an Old Testament passage, just simply the fulfillment of the Jonah 2 and the anticipation of him rising from the dead. Now, in the next seven pages, I have given to you 27 Messianic prophecies fulfilled by the Messiah, and here's what's amazing, in one day. And so, these 27, I'll just read the headline of each one of these, but you can see under the headline, you've got the Old Testament reference, many of which come out of the Messianic Psalms. And then you've got the fulfillment passage in the New Testament. So we start with number one, the betrayal of the Messiah by his own friend. And then in in Psalm 41, you've got the prophecy concerning it. You have the fulfillment of it in Mark 14.30. Number two, you've got the Messiah forsook by the disciples. Three, the price paid for the betrayal. Fourth, how the money of the betrayal would be used. Five, you've got the torture of the Messiah. Six, the shame, prosecution, and dishonor of the Messiah. Seven, you have the shepherd who is smitten. Eight, you have the division of the garments. Nine, the Messiah would not open his mouth at his trial. Ten, you have the Messiah's crucifixion. Eleven, you have the Messiah who thirsts. There on the cross, 12, you have the bitter drink given to him, 13, people staring at the Messiah on the cross, 14, Messiah's hands and feet are pierced, 15, his side was pierced, 16, Messiah's broken heart, 17, the scorning and hatred of the crowd, 18 is the prediction concerning the Lamb of God. 19 is the Messiah as the intercessor of sinners. 20, the lonely cry of the Messiah, an intense time of his suffering. 21, the disfigurement caused by the brutality of the soldiers. 22, the cry of triumph and victory of the Messiah. 23, the Passover lamb without any broken bones. 24, the Messiah placed with the transgressors 
like a sinner, even though he never sinned. 25, the Messiah would be cut off or killed, but not by his own fault. 26, the fight against Satan and triumph of the Messiah. And 27 is the Messiah would be buried in a tomb by of a rich man. Pretty amazing. You have 27 prophecies, all in the Old Testament, all fulfilled in one day. And I'll let you, you know, have this as reference. And if you want to go back and study it and look up the passages, makes a great study, a very interesting study. And of course, when we get to that part in Luke where we're taking a look at the Messiah and that day of his suffering, of his crucifixion, we will see all of these things in detail. Verse 32, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So here Jesus predicted exactly what is going to happen. And he can do that because he is omniscient. And he has demonstrated that throughout his ministry. Um, For instance, I've given, put down here uh, several examples. His knowledge of man's hearts. Uh, You will find statements that say he knew what was in a person's heart. And that was because of his omniscience. Location of a fish with a coin in its mouth. A woman who had five husbands, Jesus told her. Location of the colt. He would ride in the triumphant, triumphal entry. And a man carrying a pitcher who would show them the place where they would eat the Last Supper. And lastly, that Jerusalem would be destroyed 40 years later. So we see throughout the life of Christ, his use of his omniscience. And here, he is telling exactly to the disciples, he is telling exactly what is going to be coming up, the events that will be coming up. And they are as sure as can be because he is the one that's giving it and guaranteeing it. So as you look at what he talks about in verse 32 and 33, I just ask you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes upon hearing this gruesome news. I mean, uh, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be mistreated, he's going to be spit upon. There's probably no act that would show more hatred and disgust for someone than to spit upon them after they have scourged him and we know what that's about and the gruesomeness of that, taking whips embedded with glass and bones and stones and so on and whipping Jesus till his flesh on his back would have been in shreds and not just one person doing it, but because they would get tired uh, of doing it, they would hand it off to another person who would do it. I mean, it was... To be scourged is is quite a um, gruesome process. And it says, and they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So when it talks here about him being mistreated, I've given some words here that are very, very intense, strong words. The word mistreated, hubridzo which means injury, insult, reproach, arrogance, insolence, ill-treatment will be upon him. When we talk about scourging, mastigao is the Greek word that's used. It means to flog, to whip, to scourge. Apokateno is a word which means, when it talks about kill, it's a word which means to slay. It means to uh, cut somebody down, to put them to death, to destroy them. All of those three words are the strongest of words to describe what is going to happen. And the good news is, he will rise again. And that's as part, as much a part of this prophecy as anything else. And so, if you're looking at this, and you see all the terrible things that are going to happen to Jesus, 
the amazing thing out of it all is that he will rise again. Now verse 34 says, But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now, I kind of put myself in the disciples' place, and I, I try to think of what they might be thinking at this point. When all of these things are said, what might they be thinking? Well, Jesus before has spoken in parables, so maybe they're thinking he's giving some kind of a parable, that this uh, wasn't to be taken you know, literally. So maybe we should take this figurative literal. There will be a literal truth behind it, but it's in figurative language. And it doesn't actually mean that he's going to be mistreated or killed or scourged or whatever. So maybe they're thinking this is all symbolic. They understood none of these things and they just apparently left it. Regardless of how they looked at it, they absorbed none of it. It really simply flew over their heads. It says at the end of verse 34, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. It just did not sink in. But Jesus is relaying this because he is planting the seed for future reference. He wants them to at least have this in the back of their minds. They might not understand this now. They might not get the application of it and how all of this is going to play out, but he wanted to give this to them and so that there is a reference point that they can go back to when they are observing these things take place. They can think back and know that, oh, this is what Jesus was talking about. You know, there's an important verse, if you don't have it noted in your Bible or in your notes someplace, there's an important verse in Deuteronomy 29.29 that is helpful to us as we look at Scripture and try to understand Scripture and so on, and the things that are said. And that verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. In this verse, there are given to us two different sides of truth. Truth that is secret and truth that is revealed. And there are truths that are contained that only God knows about, knows what they mean, knows what they understand. On the other hand, there are truths that have been revealed, and they belong to us, as it says here, and to our sons forever, in order that we might observe them. Now, many times you'll come to Scripture, and you will see something that maybe you do not understand. How can this possibly take place? These are what I call back burner items. They're like a stove, a stovetop, and you might discover something that you've got on a back burner, but you don't understand it. So you move it to the back burner just to let it simmer for a while. And then at some point, you may bring it forward. That's the way truth is in scripture. It's either clear, we understand it, we apply it to our lives, but there may be some truth that is a little more difficult. And so we put that on the back burner. There might be a doctrine or whatever that we don't fully understand. We've been introduced to it, for instance, like the doctrine of election that's presented in Scripture. In about 60 to 70 different verses in Scripture, it's presented. But it is it is a hard and difficult thing to comprehend and to accept. And so we take a look at it, and we might not get it at first, or it might be too difficult for us to handle. We just need to move it to the back burner, and that's fine. That's no problem doing that. There are other things 
that we don't completely know and understand that we need to move to the back burner. And it may stay back there and it might be something that we never discover. The problem is don't be too hasty in taking the things that are hard to understand and then sliding them over to say those things have to be the secret things. You want to, when you study scripture, when you see what's being presented in scripture, you want to exhaust it as much as you can. You want to study it and restudy it and study it some more and think about it and meditate on it as much as you can. And when you have done all of that and you just cannot find an answer and you have searched and you've looked at other Bible teachers and so on, men who have taught the word for a long time, and if they come to that conclusion, then it's probably likely you'll come to that conclusion as well. But I find a lot of people who are too hasty in saying, oh, we can't understand that, make a, a very determined pronouncement that, it, that it's not un, able to understand. And then perhaps years later, they do understand it. So we need to be careful with that. But there are some things that God holds secret. And he might hold them secret for a period of time. We call that in the Old Testament, we call that mysteries. Something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, we get to the New Testament, and it has been revealed. So for these disciples who are not understanding the things that the Lord Jesus is saying, someday they will understand them. Someday they will be revealed to them, and they will see the full impact of those things, not only in the life of Christ, but in their own lives and in the lives of the church as well. Then we move on to verse 35, and it says, As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Now, it's interesting to me in this transition between these two accounts of Jesus taking the disciples aside and then Jesus now dealing with a blind man as he approaches Jericho. It's interesting to me that Jesus goes right back to his ministry that he's had for three years. You know, after the disciples could not comprehend this, I mean, I, I guess Jesus could have thrown up his hands, thrown in the towel, whatever, and just said, you know what, these guys are never going to get it. Uh, you know, I, I just, uh, I need to go to Jerusalem, I need to die on the cross, whatever, and just stop my ministry right now. And thereby perhaps not finishing his ministry. He also could say, well, you know, we're heading towards Jerusalem. I'm just not going to do any of this, quote-unquote, small stuff, such as healings and miracles and casting out demons and whatever anymore. I'm just going to set my mind on Jerusalem and uh, fulfilling my mission of dying on the cross for the sins of mankind. But he did not do that. I think it's interesting that he just continues on with his ministry. He finishes well what he has started. Now, it's quite common for beggars to line up along a road leading into a village or city, as we see here. Jesus was approaching Jericho, and we have a blind man. We, we look over at Mark chapter 10, and we see his name was Bartimaeus. He's a blind man, was sitting by the road, and he was begging, probably by with many others that were also lined up there. They were there. People would be coming into the city, and so they were looking for a handout, for someone to give them something. And there was always a big crowd following Jesus. So it says, verse 36, now, hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. You know, Jesus at this time was going along. He had hundreds, if not thousands, following him. 
people coming and going at different times, but he always had a large crowd. So this guy could hear the crowd, as it says, but he could not see the crowd. So he begins to inquire as to what's going on. So they tell him, verse 37, that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Just a note here on the title of Jesus here. A man was associated, a man back then was associated not where they were born, because that would have been Jesus of Bethlehem, but they were associated with where they were raised. So that's why it makes sense for them to call Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He was the one, Jesus was the one that came out of this little tiny village as we've looked at before, where Jesus started his ministry in this little city of Nazareth where Jesus was raised. Moving on to verse 38, it says, And he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So I want you to note here in verse 38 the way he addresses Jesus. And I think that it's very insightful as to where this guy was at spiritually. First of all, he calls him Jesus because that was his name. Jesus means Yahweh saves, God saves. But then he knew who he was. And once he knew who he was, he had... Uh, some background or belief or faith in him, for he calls him Son of David. That is a messianic title, and one which describes Jesus as the heir of David's throne and the one who would fulfill the covenant God made with David. In fact, it's used 16 times in the New Testament, mostly in the book of Matthew, And we would expect to find it there because that was written specifically to the Jews. So you would therefore see Son of David used there frequently. So it's a messianic title. This individual, Bartimaeus, this blind beggar, recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. So I believe that he belonged to God. He was a child of God. He is there. And he is addressing Jesus and asking him to do something. And the last part of verse 38, he not only says, Jesus, son of David, but he says, have mercy on me. And that is significant. Because this is a cry to the one who could extend mercy. Bartimaeus realizes that Jesus is a person who can extend mercy to him. He's heard about Jesus. He's heard of what Jesus can do, that he heals the blind, that the those who are deaf, he heals them. He casts out demons. He does miracles. And so he is asking Jesus for something, and it's going to come to him. If it's going to come, it's going to become because of, of his mercy. So I put down here just some differences between justice, mercy, and grace. Justice is God giving us what we deserve. Okay, all people born into this world deserve what? They deserve condemnation. They deserve God's wrath. They deserve hell. Okay? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. So if he has mercy on us, he is not giving us what we deserve. And then grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. So when we're talking about mercy and grace, together it makes a great combination because, for instance, in salvation, God is not giving us something that we deserve and that not giving us is condemnation or a future in hell. What he is doing is is he's providing salvation for us, and that comes because of his grace. That's giving us something we don't deserve. We don't deserve that. 
Now, one of these days, the dam of God's mercy will give way to his justice. Right now, mankind is experiencing and is experiencing God's mercy. God is merciful. There are things that could happen that God withholds from happening. And right now, if you call upon the name of the Lord, his mercy is sufficient to cover your sins, which would bring about condemnation, wrath, and hell. And so we don't get those things, even though we deserve them, because of his mercy. And then he, through his grace, gives us what we don't deserve, which is salvation. But that will only go for so long. Just as before the flood, God was patient to a point, and then the dam burst. And the rains came down, and the floods came up, and as a result, the earth was flooded and killed all of mankind. Someday, his mercy will give way to his justice. And at the great white throne judgment, you will see the full fury of the wrath of God, and not only then, but throughout the entire tribulation period, upon mankind, but it will culminate in the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial period when all of unsaved man will taste the wrath, the condemnation of God through the fact that the gavel will come down and they will be sent to hell. So someone has said, never plead merit when asking God for things always plead mercy. Salvation is not rooted in the merit of man, but in the mercy of God, end quote. That's a good quote, and it's good because don't approach God based on how good you are, what you have done. God, I'm asking you this on the basis of how good I am, what I've accomplished in my life, or whatever. That will get you nowhere. You approach God, you ask things for God, just asking him to give you mercy, to give you the things that you desire or mercy. That is an important distinction that we have to make when we are coming to God, when we are approaching God. We only approach him because of mercy. We only approach him because of his grace, not because of something that is within us. Now, in verse 38 and 39, I want to point out a couple of things here about Bartimaeus. In verse 38, it says, and he called out. Okay, and in the middle of verse 39, it says, but he kept crying out all the time. There are two different words that are used here, though they look very similar in the English. Actually, in the Greek, they are different. The first word called out, buao, is a word which means to shout or to call. Crying out, in the middle of verse 39, when he cries out, it's the word kradzo, and it's a word which means to scream, to shriek, to exclaim, to call aloud, very loud. It's just, there's just more intensity in this word, what he's doing. So he is, first of all, he is calling out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, it says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so you see, he takes it up a notch. That word crying out, kradzo, was often used of animal cries. An animal caught in a trap or whatever, where there is just a, a shriek where there is a scream. And let's face it, this guy was desperate. Bartimaeus was desperate at this point, and he was not going to hold back, and he was going to get the Messiah's attention and give his request to him. So when we see in verse 39, just before he cries out loudly, it says, those who led the way were sternly telling him 
to be quiet. The word sternly that's used here is the word the Greek word epitomao. It's a word which means to scold. It means to rebuke. It's interesting, this same word is used back in Luke 18.15 with the infants. Remember, the parents were bringing their infants to Jesus and the disciples scolded them and told them, get these kids out of here. Jesus has got more important things to do. And here, same thing. Here they're trying to keep people away from Jesus. Before it was infants, now it's, it's these, these people, these beggars or whatever, they're trying to keep them from Jesus. People always feel the need to shield Jesus. You know, Jesus can stand on his own. He has a plan, and he doesn't need any of our help. I mean, we're involved in the plan of God, yes, but you know, when he ministers, he knows how to minister. He doesn't need our help. He's got a plan, and that plan includes things such as evil spirits, uh, evil itself, election, all of those things. And I've, I find people often are coming, running to the aid of Jesus. We've got to defend him. We've got to keep him pure. We've got to keep him untouched from certain things. We must protect God from any stain. The problem is, what do you do with something like the flood? Because in the flood, you have all of mankind, with the exception of eight people who are saved in the ark, the whole rest of mankind, men, women, children, babies, they all drowned. And you see, some people have a real problem with that. And they say, oh, that doesn't sound like God. There must, be, there must be another explanation, whatever it might be. Well, they can say you can talk about the people that were evil in that time, and certainly were, they were. You can read it in Genesis chapter 6. But what are you going to do about children and infants, those who haven't reached the condition of accountability yet? And they were all drowned as well. Well, God is the one that is, has a plan. He's in control. We don't need to shield him. We don't need to defend him, per se. We don't need to try to sanitize him. Look at Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made everything. Notice he's the one that's made everything for its own purpose. God has purposes for everything that exists here in this world. Notice, even the wicked for the day of evil. I've showed that to people before, and it's blown them away. They said, I can't believe that. That's in Scripture. And this is just one of many verses. God, you can go in the Old Testament. God uses evil spirits, sends evil spirits. He does all kinds of things. He can do that, and he can remain unstained. It doesn't mean that God is sinful if he uses sinful things to accomplish his what? His purposes, his righteous, holy purposes. He's using something, he's doing something for the greater good. There's something greater that's going to come out of his action of using evil or whatever it might be. There's something that's going to come out of that that is going to be a greater good and for his glory. So remember that about God. And so then it says, they were sternly telling him to be quiet, and he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. When they are sternly telling him to be quiet, it's interesting, this word to be quiet, the sagao is the Greek word, to keep quiet, but it's an even more intense form of that. I guess I would view it, these guys that are here, those who were leading the way, and they're looking back at Bartimaeus, who is screaming out at the top of his lungs, and they're telling him to keep quiet, and he's not doing it. In, in fact, it, it means here that they're, they were doing it over and over again, and finally they just said to him, and I envision this, that they're saying this to him, will you please shut up? 
I think that brings the flavor and the intensity of what's being said here. And he would not. Jesus was there and he wanted to get his attention because he desired something. So it says in verse 40, And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So right here, it says in verse 40, Jesus stops. He hears his plea and he heals him immediately, it says. He tells him, receive your sight. After he asks him the question, what do you want me to do for you? I can imagine this guy on the inside, Bartimaeus, just could not believe that Jesus was going to pay attention. He came over, he's looking this guy straight in the face, and he's saying, what would you like me to do for you? And he is saying that he wanted to regain his sight, and immediately it says he regained his sight. Now I want to underline again that word immediately. We have said this all the way through the book of Luke. When Jesus performs a miracle, a healing, it is always immediately. There is no delay, unlike faith healers today who tell people, well, you know, just go home, you're, you know, wait for your healing, you know, to really take effect, so on and so forth, never happens in the Gospels. When God is involved in healing, when Jesus is involved, it is always done instantaneously, immediately. He regains his sight, and you'll notice that the result, he does two things here. Bartimaeus does two things. Number one, he immediately begins following Jesus, and number two, he begins glorifying God. We don't know how long he kept uh, following him all the way to the cross. We don't know. He received his sight, which that miracle was something that probably uh, just totally blew him away, and it was an amazing thing that had taken place to the point where he couldn't help himself, but to just give himself to following Jesus. And as a result, that resulted in the crowd responding. It says here that when the, all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So here is quite a sight of this individual receiving his sight from the Lord Jesus. He just gets in line to follow Jesus along with the disciples and, and so on. And he begins glorifying God. And when he demonstrates that and says that and proclaims that, the crowd gets excited. And they saw it and they gave praise to God, recognizing that God is the one that had done this. So overall, though the storm clouds are beginning to form in Jerusalem, Jesus continues his ministry here without interruption. There's no throwing in the towel. There's no getting frustrated over what the disciples responded when he told them what was upcoming. And they just let it go right over their heads. Jesus here finishes well. Okay, let's take a look at some application here as we close off this section of scripture. Number one, the plan of God is guaranteed to be fulfilled because of the person of God. That's a very general statement, but it's an important statement because anytime you take a look in scripture as to God's plan for the future and what is going to take place, it's always predicated on the person of God and who he is. And when Jesus is telling the disciples, this is what's going to happen in the future, you can, you can be assured it's going to happen because it's based on who the Lord Jesus Christ is and who his Father is. 
And they are the ones, along with the Holy Spirit, that are going to carry this out. And it will all be fulfilled exactly the way he desired it to be fulfilled. There are a lot of things we don't understand about the plan of God. There are things that that are unrevealed to us about the plan of God. Things that will take place today, tomorrow, this week, month, year, uh, that we don't know about. But they were all in the plan of God. And all we have to do to, to see if it was in the plan of God is at the end of the day, look back on the day. Or the end of the week, look back on the week. Or the end of the year, look back on the year. And see all the events that have taken place. And those events were all in the predetermined will of God. Might not be his perfect moral will that's contained in the Bible, but he is using all events, everything in this world, under his sovereign direction to accomplish his plan. A plan that will bring him the most glory, that will most fully demonstrate all of his attributes, all of his person. And that's why we can say that the plan of God is guaranteed to be fulfilled because of the person of God. God wants to demonstrate who he is. And so he has put a plan in place that will do that. Number two, everyone born into this world is born spiritually blind and remains in that condition until saved. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So, God has an enemy. And that enemy is the God of this world, known as the devil, known as Satan. And Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. And it's only when God takes the blinders off, opens their eyes, quickens their spirit, that they are able to see the light and receive the light. But everyone is in that condition. You might be listening today. You've never come to Christ. You've been blinded by Satan. You've been led to believe lies about God and his son. But today you can have those blinders lifted. You can be born again, regenerated, and you can receive the truth of the word of God as contained in his word. Number three, question. Do we stop, do we look people in the eye who are hurting and ask, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked that question of Bartimaeus. Our question is, and the question that we should be asking people, as we journey through life, we come upon people who are hurting. People who, maybe not so much verbally, are crying out, but in their hearts, and you can read it on their faces, they are hurting. They are crying out. The easy thing is, is just to ignore it and to go on our way. The godly thing, the biblical thing to do, is to look them in the eye and say, what do you want me to do for you? Those are excellent times of ministry. We don't want to pass over them. We want to take advantage of them. And the fourth point here, the fourth application, all of us need to ask ourselves, if we're still alive, then the finish line is still before us, down the road someplace. And the question we need to ask is, will we finish well? Will we finish well? Or will at some point we throw in the towel and say, that's it, I'm done, whatever. You know, Paul said in Second Timothy chapter 4, he said, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Is that true of us? Will we be able to look back on our lives someday 
and say we finished the course, we have finished well, we've made it to the end, to the tape, to the end of the race, and have we done a good job of it? Too many people give up. Too many people get to retirement and give up and say, that's it, fine, I've done that, I'm not going to do any more. And yet they've got years of ministry ahead of them. We need to look at our own lives and make sure we're going to finish the race well. Let's pray together. Father, again, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the opportunity we've had to study this passage, these last verses of chapter 18 of Luke. We're just thankful for how it speaks to our hearts. As we back off a little bit and just see how your son finished his life. And though he saw the end on the horizon, yet he continued to do what he knew what he was called to do. And that's what we pray for ourselves today, Lord. We pray that we would finish well. Down the road, we know there's an end, end in sight. And what we want to do, Lord, is we want to finish well. We don't want to say just because we've reached a certain age or a certain plateau in our lives that now we're hanging it up. We're not going to do anymore. Scripture tells us, your scripture tells us that while it is still day, we need to work. We need to work hard. So we pray that we would we would take heed to that, that we would obey that, and that we would finish well, that you may say to us someday when we stand before you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little, I'm going to entrust you with much. So that's our prayer today, Lord. We're praying by the power of your Holy Spirit living within us, you will enable us to not only run the race, but to run it well, and to run all of the race to its completion. For we pray this all in Jesus' name, and for his sake alone. Amen. <music>